From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. China is dealing with the outbreak of a respiratory illness caused by a new coronavirus first identified in the city of Wuhan. Thousands of people have been infected, some have died, and more cases are being diagnosed in people all over the world, including in the United States. To help us gain perspective on this outbreak, I have with me in the HealthLink on Air studio, Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's a professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and also the division chief of infectious disease. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thomas. Thanks for having me. Why is this outbreak of international concern? I think it's of international concern primarily because we have not seen this virus transmitted between people before. Uh, we don't know if people have been infected with this in the past, but they certainly have not been made as ill as they're being made now. Um, so I think that's one element. I think the second element is that the virus clearly is transmissible between people. So that's another thing that is of great concern. And uh, with the ease of travel, and of international travel in particular, um, it's uh, very easy for someone to be infected with the virus and then not have symptoms necessarily, get on a plane, and be in another country in a relatively short period of time. And then uh, the concern would be that they introduce the virus then into another country. And of course, we've seen that with um, the gradual increase in number of countries that have had uh, novel coronavirus infections uh, confirmed. So people might be infected and not know it, have no idea that they're sick or whatever, and, and right. show symptoms days later? Right, That's sure. Yeah, I mean, we think that the, uh, um, the current evidence would suggest that the the incubation period is anywhere between one day and 14 days. So if, per, if someone is infected on day zero, they could start having symptoms if they're going to develop symptoms on between the day after they get infected all the way through up to two weeks after being infected. So how does that, um, just put that in terms that people might be familiar with influenza, how does this compare to influenza in the transmissibility and, and the ability to make people sick? How contagious it is. Well, yeah, so we actually don't know the answer to that yet. Um, that's something that folks are looking into. Um, there have been from some uh, groups in the UK who do infectious disease modeling, um, who have put out some reports that they think uh, they think the the number they call it the R naught. <laughs> it's the number of people that a certain that a single person could infect, and they believe that that number is about two and a half, and so. One person could infect two and a half people, and then those two and a half people could each infect two and a half people. So that's that's a relatively high number for an infectious disease, um, but we don't know for sure yet what uh, you know what that number is. But in terms of comparisons to influenza, um, it's transmitted in very much the same way. So it's transmitted through respiratory droplets, and respiratory droplets are. Um, they're put in the air when people cough or when people sneeze or when people have, uh, you know, runny nose and uh, someone else is close enough that they would inhale or otherwise get exposed to those, uh, to those respiratory droplets. But don't we have thousands of people who um, get sick with influenza each year and some who die from that too? Uh, no, absolutely. And, and I'll, you know, I'll be honest, I'm much, I'm much more concerned um, about influenza uh, in central New York and in the United States than I am about novel coronavirus. I mean, if you look at the CDC's report just from this past week, they've already reported 15 million 
flu illnesses in the country this year. They've had about 140,000 people who have been hospitalized, and over 8,200 people have already died this year from the flu. On average, about 35,000 people a year die from influenza in the United States. And yet there's not uh, headlines about that today. No, no, there's not. Well, let's talk about, because um, SARS Mm -hmm. and MERS, those Mm -hmm. are coronaviruses too, right? Correct. Yeah, so taking a step back, I mean, um, human coronaviruses were first identified back in the 1960s. Uh, We believe there's seven types that cause disease in people. Uh, Four of those types are, they cause more mild-like illnesses. So they kind of, they cause the common cold. So about 10 to 30% of upper respiratory infections that occur um, mostly in the winter uh, are caused by coronaviruses. We at Upstate routinely test people who come in with respiratory illnesses. We will routinely test them for um, these common uh, coronaviruses. Uh, They can, in certain circumstances, um, uh, cause severe disease in certain types of people, but for the most part, it's a mild, self-limited disease. And then there's three other strains that cause more significant disease in people. So the first was SARS, so the uh, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, coronavirus, um, in 2002. Um, And then the second was around 2012. That's the MERS-CoV, so that's the Middle Eastern Respiratory uh, syndrome uh, coronavirus, which is largely um, uh, confined to uh, to the Middle East and Saudi Arabia. And then now we have the 2019 novel uh, coronavirus, which has come out of uh, come out of China. So are these uh, viruses that can be passed between humans and animals? So the thought is that that's how they initially um, find their way into people is that they jump um, they jump from likely bats. So it, we, we don't know for sure, but, um, you know, folks who study this in, in, in depth uh, and, and try to, to figure out these mysteries, um, you know, common thought is that they exist in bats and that the bats then pass them to other animals and then those other animals, um, uh, people come in contact with those other animals and, uh, and then the people, uh, the virus figures out how to exist in a person and then... Um, that person uh, can then get sick and then pass it to other people. But it really is, I mean, um, we don't, you know, I think we don't know more than we do know. (laughs) Um, And so it's an evolving, it's an evolving story. Do we know if a person had SARS, if that gives them immunity to this new coronavirus? Does it work that way? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. I don't think we know the answer to that. That would be, um, you would have to, you would have to find people who had been infected with SARS, and then you would have to see if those people had been infected with or exposed to the novel coronavirus and, and what happened. Um, I think that they are genetically distinct enough um, that there probably um, probably would not be significant cross-protection, but that's, that's not to say that it's not possible um, or that that concept could be leveraged to make you know, vaccine to use vaccine technologies uh, that were, you know, used previously to try and come up with a, a SARS or a MERS-CoV um, vaccine. But, you know, the the one thing that's different between SARS and MERS-CoV is the, um, the receptor that the person has to actually uh, capture the virus and then have the virus infect that person and, and make them sick. 
Um, we do know this, the receptors between SARS and MERS-CoV are, are different, um, and they're trying to figure out right now what, uh, which one the novel coronavirus is, is closer to. I think early thinking is that it's closer to SARS than it is to MERS-CoV, but that's still an un, unfinished story. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's a professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and also the division chief of infectious disease. So let's talk about this particular coronavirus novel, COV-2019. What mm-hmm. do we know about it? What makes it so dangerous? Uh, well, it's. I think one of the reasons that it's dangerous is it would appear that um, people have not been widely exposed to it before. So there is no either individual or population level immunity to the virus. And so um, people would have to rely on what we call innate um, immune responses to try to protect them if they were, uh, if they were infected. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing we know is that, uh, and we're pretty confident, is that it can be spread from person to person, as I mentioned, probably through, you know, through primarily respiratory uh, droplets. Um, so that's the second thing that's, uh, that we know about it. Um, we know that it can cause severe disease in people. So people can get very severe pneumonia. They can get um, uh, ARDS, which is very uh, significant uh, a problem with people's lungs. And we know that it can kill people. So, you know, as of this morning, they were reporting about 6,057 confirmed cases and around 132 uh, 32 deaths. But, you know, what we, what we don't know, we don't know the denominators, right? So we don't know the total number of people who've been exposed. We don't know the total number of people who have been infected. We don't know of those people who have been infected, how many people develop a mild disease that allows them to go on with their day versus a more significant disease that forces them to come to see a physician. Um, we only know sort of what's above the, the part, the part of the iceberg that's above the water. We don't know the part of the iceberg that's below, below the water. So, you know, if you take 132 deaths and you look at that in the context of how many confirmed infections there are, it's, a, you know, just over a 2% uh, case fatality rate. Uh, we don't know what the end of the story will look like, but for context, you know, SARS had about a 10% case fatality rate, and MERS-CoV had about a 35% um, case fatality rate. Uh, but this story is far from being complete. So the symptoms, is it like a, a cold? With Do you get a fever, a cough, a runny nose? I mean, what are the... Right. Just yeah. like that. Okay. Yeah, so it's mostly... Um, uh, it, it, and what distinguishes the three severe coronaviruses from the other four that I had mentioned um, that cause disease in humans. Um, this is more lower respiratory tract. So this is fever, muscle aches, fatigue, cough, can have shortness of breath, could have chest discomfort. If you do, you know, an x-ray of the lungs or you do a CAT scan of the lungs, there is radiographic evidence of, of significant um, lung disease. Uh, so, yeah, so this is a lower respiratory tract uh, Does illness. it seem to target um, the elderly or the infirm, or, or does, is this an equal opportunity virus? Right. Yeah, again, that, that story is not complete. We know that it can infect people across a broad range of ages. 
um, you know, some of the initial reports um, based on very small numbers of patients, but some of the initial reports uh, that have come out kind of characterizing who gets sick and who doesn't, um, there does not seem to be um, a, a significant uh, predilection for people with other medical comorbidities. Um, so it seems that there are as many people who get sick that may not have any pre-existing medical problems as those people who might be um, older and have significant medical problems. You know, my guess from extrapolating from other respiratory um, illnesses is that, uh, you know, the, the, the older you are and the more significant heart or lung disease that you have at baseline, the less likely that you're going to tolerate uh, an infection well. Um, so, but again, this is again, an under, unwritten, uncompleted part, part of the, of the novel coronavirus story. On television, we see, um, people wearing paper masks out in public. Do those paper masks do much to keep the person wearing them safe or to keep the people around them safe? I think that probably, um, uh, Probably what it does effectively is to remind people <laughs> that there is uh, that there is something going on, um, and hopefully it prompts people to, uh, if they're ill, to avoid uh, crowded settings. If they're ill, to ensure that uh, uh, they seek medical attention. To make sure that everybody's very frequently washing their hands with soap and water, trying to avoid touching. Uh, touching your nose or touching your mouth, um, you know, today there's, yeah, there have been things in the news about uh, whether those masks really do anything to be able to prevent um, the types of uh, respiratory droplets that people breathe in and, and can cause an infection. And um, I think the thinking is probably no, um, but there are masks like the N95 mask, which is, um, that's what we use in the hospital. That's what we use as part of our um, personal protective equipment packet, if you will. So goggles and gloves and gowns and these N95 masks. And those do protect people from um, these uh, respiratory, respiratory droplets. Can I talk to you about how public health experts um, zeroed in on where this virus started? I mean, we've read uh, that a market in Wuhan, how would mm. they know that? Just for, I mean, if you've got sick people showing up in the hospital, how right. would you go about tracing it back. Yeah. Um, so, you know, unfortunately we get a lot of practice with this sort of, uh, with this sort of thing. Um, and, and it is, um, in the end, or I should say in the beginning, it's just very good medical detective work. It's, uh, epidemiology. So, you know, whenever, especially as an infectious disease person, whenever we, um, see someone who has an illness that is kind of unexplained, we ask all sorts of questions about, you know, what do you do? How do you spend your day? Have you traveled recently? What did you do when you traveled? Where did you stay? What kind of people were you um, around? Did you have contact with anyone who was sick? And so whenever there is a cluster of illnesses, like a respiratory illness or a pneumonia, that either looks the same or the numbers are greater than what you would expect for, let's say, a normal flu season, right? A normal flu and cold season. Um, and you start asking the same questions to a bunch of people and you start seeing common threads among those people, um, then that gets you thinking. So then the other thing that you can do um, once you have suspicion is 
uh, you know, they're able to isolate the virus from people. And so now they're isolating the same type of virus from people. They're doing, they're developing the genetic sequence. And so they understand genetically that it's the same virus. Um, and kind of all those tools you triangulate into where you think this likely came from. And if you think that there was an animal reservoir, so if you think it, you know, um, bats or other animals that might be sold at that market, then you can go investigate and take samples of animals and, and, the, and, uh, um, and do the same type of testing that you do in people. And then you can, you can match up virus to virus and, and, and now I, I am not an epidemiologist, so I just gave you a very simplified sure, view, sure. but, um, but that's the general, uh, the general concept. How effective are quarantines at preventing the spread of something like this? That's a, that's a really good question. And that's a question of some, um, uh, debate and, and, uh, people are, um, people are getting into heated discussions, uh, on social media, uh, um, about this, um, because, you know, about 60 million people have been, have been put on sort of restricted movement, uh, you know, within, within China and people are wondering whether that's a good thing or, or a bad thing. Um, you know, it, if, I guess it would depend on when you, uh, implemented a quarantine. Um, and in, in this case, you know, people are quoting that, you know, up to 5 million people had already departed that area prior to the restricted movement, um, policies being, being put in place. So they question, they question the value of that. Um, I mean, in, in general, so quarantine or controlled monitoring, um, these can be tools that public health people need to implement in, uh, uh, in an epidemic or a pandemic setting. And it, it certainly, um, it can play a role in ensuring that people who are sick or people who are under suspicion of having been infected will not come in contact with people who, who have not. The challenge is when you have an incubation period of up to 14 days when you, uh, meaning someone could not be ill, but have the virus and be able to transmit to other people for two weeks. Um, you know, that, that person may not have their movement restricted, right? So now they have a two week, uh, they have a two week period where they can be moving around and doing, you know, whatever it is that they do. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not answering your question directly because I don't know if there is a clear answer on uh, the benefits well, of we, quarantine. We or don't control. know much about yeah. this virus. It sounds like we, we don't know how effective it might end up being or not. Right. Right. Well, let me ask you this then, because there's a lot of travel restrictions, airlines mm-hmm. that aren't flying to China and, and such. How risky is I'm it sorry. for a person in Wuhan who's healthy to walk down the street if if they're keeping their hands washed and they're covering their mouth when they sneeze and they're not right. shaking hands with people how how risky is it just to exist there um yeah so i so i have the same information that everybody else has who has access to the internet so we only know what's being reported and what's coming out of out of the country so i i can't speak of course to wuhan um you know, if if other countries are to send medical experts in China is to accept their help, I'm sure that um, that you know there'll be more there'll probably be more information. Um, you know, if but if we just think about how it's transmitted, so 
your highest risk of being infected is if you are within close proximity to someone else who is infected and who is infective um, and they're coughing or sneezing or they're um, or you are exposed to their secretions, spit and snot and things like that. Um, and we usually think we use a figure of about six feet. So the highest risk zone would be in about a six, you know, six foot radius. Um, so, you know, I was reading this morning that many, many towns and villages and uh, uh, even places like, you know, uh, uh, Macau, which is a huge uh, gambling uh, center, right, in uh, Hong Kong, uh, that it's kind of a ghost town. So I think people are largely staying inside. Um, I think people are obviously very concerned. Um, but really, it's that six foot kind of high risk zone that we that we worry about. Well, there are some cases that have been diagnosed in America, but mm-hmm. is this outbreak something Americans should be concerned about? Um, uh, so concerned, I would say that they should be aware. Uh, I would say that they um, should be, especially if they're in, uh, you know, the healthcare field or travel industry. They should be vigilant to make sure that they have, you know, situational awareness about. Is somebody, you know, uh, is someone ill? And if they are ill, have they, where have they traveled and where have they been? Um, and once those questions are answered, if that person is, you know, meets certain uh, criteria that they, um, you know, that they be isolated and that some experts then assess the situation a little more deeply. You know, should the, should the general population be concerned? I don't think I don't think we're there yet. Again, I would be more concerned about influenza. (laughs) I would be more concerned about um, people not wanting to get vaccinated. I would be more concerned about um, people not practicing good hand hygiene, um, you know, during our winter season when we, again, have about 35,000 people a year die in this country from, you know, from influenza. So, um, so I, I, I think, uh, I think concerned might be a strong word. I would just say alert and vigilant. Are people at risk here if they receive packages or products that come from China? Uh, no, not to my not to my knowledge. I guess one could. Um, I mean, you could. Uh, I guess hypothesize that if if this truly is from an animal reservoir and somebody were to get, um, uh, you know, animals or or um, meat or something of that nature that that, you know, hypothetically, I guess, but um, that would be a stretch. Okay. Well, the CDC is telling people um, in America, if they have symptoms, and they have a history of recent travel to China, to call ahead before they go to the hospital. Absolutely. So why are they? Why is that? What does the hospital do before they get there? Yeah, so typically, and, and I should, I should make this point, uh, clear. So we, uh, especially in, in central New York, I'll just speak to central New York. Um, we have a lot of travelers. We have a lot of international students. We have, um, a relatively large immigrant population. And so, you know, we are constantly, um, uh, monitoring people who are sick and where they have tra- where they may have potentially traveled. Um, that is an everyday activity that we participate in at all the hospitals around here. So if someone comes in ill, 
they're going to ask, have you traveled outside the country in the last, you know, 21 days or 28 days, something like that. Um, we did that for measles. We did that for Ebola. It's just, it's a constant, it's a constant thing that we always, um, that we always do. So the idea is, as I look at it is first, you know, you maintain your suspicion, you ask the right questions. And in doing that, you identify someone who may be at risk. And in this case, it would be, do you have signs or symptoms consistent with a respiratory infection? And have you traveled to China or Asia? Or have you been recently exposed to somebody who has traveled to China or Asia? Um, And then, so the first thing then is to identify. And then the second thing is to then isolate. So if someone were to come in and say, I I just got back from China and I've, you know, I came back seven days ago and now I have a fever and a cough and I don't feel well. Um, then that person would immediately have a mask placed on them. They would be put into isolation. What I mean by isolation is just a private room. Um, and we have rooms that are, um, all hospitals have rooms that are, um, specific for people with respiratory infections. So the way the air flows in the room, um, maximally protects, um, the public and the staff from that person. So the person would be isolated. Uh, and then um, the physicians, uh, and usually they will, whether it's an emergency department or a clinic or something like that, they'll usually call the infectious disease physicians. They'll call the infection control um, uh, uh, folks. And then we will then evaluate the situation and evaluate. We'll do a history. We'll do a physical exam. We'll take some blood. We'll... Uh, um, do a chest X-ray, and we'll make an assessment of how likely we think um, the risk is that this person may have uh, the infection. Uh, and at that point, we talk to the state Department of Health and the physicians at the state Department of Health. Um, and Onondaga uh, County is where we start, um, but it may escalate to the state uh, potentially. And then together, we make a decision: Does this person need to be tested specifically for the novel coronavirus? So yes, there, yes there no. is a test that there can is tell the you. CDC is doing the test. So if everyone agrees, yeah, this person should be tested, um, then they'll remain in isolation. We will take care of them. We'll get the samples that are required, uh, and then we'll follow the protocol. And the samples ultimately go to Albany to the Wadsworth Laboratory where they do some testing, and then the definitive test is done uh, at the CDC uh, down in Atlanta. And then they will communicate back to us what the uh, what the results are. Um, and, you know, oftentimes, uh, and in addition to testing, though, for, uh, again, you're more likely to have influenza, you're more likely to have one of these other respiratory viruses than you are to have novel coronavirus. But to go back to your initial point, ideally, <laughs> yes, the person would self-identify and say, either call their primary care doctor or call the emergency department or you know, whatever, and say, I recently traveled to Asia. I now have fever and cough and shortness of breath. What do you want me to do? Because then we can, you know, we can meet them outside of the hospital, right? We can get the mask and we can help them to get, you know, avoid a lot of traffic and avoid a lot of people and get them into that private, uh, get them into that private room. So uh, how is this recommended to be treated? I mean, right now it's supportive care. Right now it is just supportive care. 
Um, so uh, there are some trials going on now with uh, um, certain types of antivirals that have been explored before with SARS and MERS-CoV. They've ex- been explored uh, in animal models. And these are, um, when I say by antiviral, is these are, these are medications that prevent the virus from rep- replicating. So the idea being people get sick because they have lots of virus replicating in their body. If and the sicker you are, uh, and the more virus you have, the sicker you are. And so if you can stop the replication process and allow the body's immune system to kick in um, and give it a little bit of help, then you may be able to reduce uh, disease severity. So there are trials that are going on now in China. Um, and uh, but but as of now, it's it's supportive care. Supportive care, yeah. so things to help reduce the fever or the cough severity or yeah, make sure that you can support their oxygen requirements. Um, and uh, you know if they have other problems, if uh, make sure that they have enough uh, volume in their blood vessels, make sure that their kidneys are okay. You know, just basically um, supportive care for anyone. I mean, it'd be a similar process to anybody who's. Uh, critically ill. And, you know, sometimes, uh, y- you know, in, in some of the folks that uh, have developed severe disease, they've required um, ventilator support. So they can't breathe well on their own. So they need to be put on a ventilator to help breathe uh, for them. Is the work being done on a vaccine or is it premature? To no, definitely, <laughs> definitely not uh, premature. Um, yeah, there are... Um, uh, so the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, uh, the Vaccine Research Center uh, within NIAID, um, they are they're working on a vaccine candidate. Um, there are some other uh, there are some other groups that have worked on um, MERS-CoV vaccines uh, in the past, um, and I'm I'm assuming that they are also um, working on uh, vaccine candidates. The um, uh, CEPI, which is the uh, uh, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations, um, they are they've reported that they're funding to the tune of about twelve and a half million dollars three different companies to look into um, vaccine candidates that could potentially um, potentially be of value. You know, I I worked before I came to Upstate. I I worked with one of the companies on a MERS-CoV vaccine, and uh, you know, I felt like we went very fast, but it's still, it's still, even when you're moving at a rapid speed and you have the resources you need, it takes, it takes time. And then if you end up with a product that people won't take, I mean, you still have trouble getting people to take a flu shot every year, right? So I know. Well, you know, people, uh, I think people look at vaccines in a, in a binary way. They say they either work or they don't work. Um, and, you know, when they report numbers like vaccine efficacy of 35%, uh, I think people get dismayed. That, but that 35%, what that represents is um, just protecting people from infection with influenza, right? So someone could come in with, you know, fever, runny nose and cough, and they get tested and they're flu positive. And if, they've, if they were vaccinated, uh, then that is a ding against the vaccine, right? And it lowers the efficacy. And so people really, they, they, they really jump on that number of 35%. Whereas, you know, in my view, the numbers that are of equal importance, or maybe even more important, 
uh, that don't get reported as widely is, you know, how many, what was the efficacy at preventing severe influenza, mm-hmm. preventing people from needing to be admitted to the hospital, people needing to be admitted to intensive care units, the ability of vaccination to reduce a person's infectivity to others. Um, you know, there have been studies that have looked at um, uh, cardiovascular uh, um, outcomes and people have uh, been vaccinated against influenza versus those that have not. And there's been uh, high efficacy um, for that. You know, all cause mortality. Um, so there's a lot of other, there's a lot of other benefits that vaccination against influenza um, confers to people, but that don't get as widely reported. And, and that's on, I mean, you know, that's on my community and the scientific community and others to, uh, uh, to do a better job at messaging the benefits of influenza vaccination outside of just preventing, you know, infection with, uh, with flu. Well, thank you to Upstate Infectious Disease Chief Dr. Stephen Thomas. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.